0: This is americaswebradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just
1: for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest news and information regarding mental health. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of the latest news about research into the causes and treatments of mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry while endeavoring to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis, and needing treatment, and also striving to better educate the general public about psychiatry. And this is the December the 11th edition of Psychiatry Today, 2013, rapidly drawing to a close. Um, I'll give you a scheduling note while I'm thinking of it. There will not be a show December the 25th and January the 1st, those being holidays, so we'll have a show for this week and then next week, and then after that, I'll be back with you again in 2014. As always, I welcome your questions and your comments. If there's anyone listening who has a problem with their mental health or that of someone close to them, and you've tried to get help and it hasn't worked out, or you're not sure of where or how to turn to get help, uh, I would like very much to be a resource for you and uh, try to get you steered in the right direction. So please send any and all questions regarding mental health issues or comments about tonight's show or a previous show that you've listened to to me here at America's Web Radio. And uh, the way to send it to me is via email. And that email address is Doctor Scott? That's spelled D-R-S-C-O-T at RadiosandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O, S-A-N-D-Y, S-P-R-I-N-G-S dot com. All information will be kept strictly confidential. Nothing will be read on the air that could even remotely be used to identify the sender of the question. And generally speaking, I will uh, provide my answer to your questions or concerns on the following week's show. Well, so what is the top mental health story since I was with you last week? That has got to be a new study that shows that pregnant women's depression may mess with their baby's brain. Now, those of you who are regular and or long-time listeners to this show know that it's somewhat of an area of concern of mine to talk about the effects of depression in pregnancy and how that affects the unborn fetus and the newborn child, and likewise, the effects of antidepressants as a treatment of depression for women who are pregnant and the controversy surrounding, well, should women take medication, should women not take medication, and the conflicting reports of the effects of antidepressant medication on the developing fetus and, as a result, the newborn, and uh, also the effects during breastfeeding, all of it. And uh, I make no bones about the fact that, as far as this controversy while I certainly would be the first one to say that if women could be treated with psychotherapy alone and no medication, that would be best, I think if a woman needs medication, that the side effects of untreated depression are more serious than the side effects of a woman taking medication while pregnant or while breastfeeding. And this study, I think, finally... May vindicate that point of view, because it goes into the details as to what are the effects of a woman suffering from depression on her baby, without treatment. So let's get right into that. And uh, I want to say right off the bat, I welcome any and all comments about this. If you have strong feelings one way or the other about this issue, uh, please feel free to send them to me by email. But Let's, uh, let's go into this study first. Now, pregnancy certainly may be a stressful and overwhelming time for mothers-to-be. There are thoughts about whether she'll be a good mother. Will the baby be healthy? Uh, can she and her partner support their newborn? And these thoughts begin to consume the minds of women while they're pregnant. These worries can lead to a wide range of emotions such as depression and anxiety, and uh, these feelings could affect the well-being of the infant. Now, according to this study, babies born to pregnant mothers with depression are likely to experience alteration in brain development, increasing their vulnerability to mental illness. So there you have it so far. I mean, the study shows that if a woman is depressed while pregnant that will have a negative impact on the fetus's developing brain making them more vulnerable to mental illness. We're talking about the pregnant brain on depression. No medication, folks. Now, it is common during pregnancy for expectant mothers to experience mood swings because of the changes in hormone levels such as estrogen, and progesterone. The American Pregnancy Association says the significant hormonal changes can affect the level of brains, chemicals that regulate mood, known as neurotransmitters. You've heard of these, the major ones being serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Typically, these pregnancy-related hormonal-emotional swings are present during the first trimester between 6 to 10 weeks, and then again in the third trimester as the body begins to prepare itself for birth. Mood swings that become more frequent and intense, lasting more than two weeks, could lead to a serious health issue for the mother and baby. As depression is the most prevalent in women during their childbearing years, this increases the risk for pregnant women to develop depression while they're pregnant um, at any point during uh, the pregnancy. Now, this form of depression could transmit mood and anxiety disorders to a growing fetus with the alteration of their amygdala. The amygdala is a very small structure deep in the middle of the brain, and it's commonly referred to as the fear center, uh, typically, what it will do is demonstrate a, an emotional uh, valence or assign an, an emotional value, as it were, to a specific negative stimuli in the environment. Now, this research was published in the journal Biological Psychiatry, for those of you who are interested in looking into it further. Researchers examined the association between prenatal maternal depression and variation in the fetal development of the amygdala in the brains of the of their fetuses. And so these mothers that were between 10 to 13 weeks of pregnancy were recruited to be assessed for maternal depression. Then their newborns were analyzed to observe any changes in the structure of the amygdala and its pattern. Of connections to other parts of the brain. 157 pregnant women were asked to complete a depression questionnaire during their 26th week of pregnancy and then were assessed for depression using the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, uh, a widely used instrument to measure depression uh, in the postpartum phase. And their newborns, Uh, six to fourteen days old, underwent MRI scans to develop, rather to uh, determine the development and the structure of their amygdala. Afterwards, different types of scans were used to analyze the amygdala's pattern of connections to other parts of the brain. The findings revealed that the size or the volume of the amygdala did not differ between the infants, regardless of their mothers being depressed or not. However, the connectivity or the wiring between the amygdala and other parts of the brain was significantly reduced or abnormal, especially on the right side, the right amygdala, you have one on the right and left, in the infants who were born to mothers with high levels of depression so here you have it there's an abnormality in a part of the brain that we know is involved in emotional processing of stimuli and it's as a result of or it's at least strongly associated with depression in the mother now these brain abnormalities are typically seen in individuals with depression the blood flow and metabolism the amygdala are definitely affected by the severity of depression. And since the hypothalamus, which is a a small gland at the base of the brain, is controlled by the amygdala, an abnormality in it can lead to behavioral changes as a result of the impact on the hypothalamus, which affects sleep, so it can cause insomnia, it can cause anxiety, uh, decreased grooming, problems with sexual behavior, so depression in pregnant mothers may transmit mood and anxiety disorders to their child as early as fetal life, increasing their vulnerability to mental illness as they grow and develop. Now, this notion that maternal depression might influence the brain development of their babies is very concerning the good news is that this risk might be reduced by systematic screening of pregnant women for depression and initiating effective treatment. And of course, that presumes that such screening would be valued enough to emphasize that it needs to be done with physicians. And who is that likely to be? Well, first primary care physicians. Right. It would behoove them to speak to their female patients who are of reproductive age before they become pregnant or at very least OBGYNs speaking to their patients again before they become pregnant or certainly if they're already pregnant. All right, well, we'll take our first commercial break here and we'll come back. We'll finish our thoughts on this article and then we have much more to go on psychiatry today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this commercial break.
2: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com.
0: This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio and medical director for the Atlanta Healing Center. I'd like to give you the tip of the day regarding cultivating an attitude of gratitude. Often holiday times, we can get caught up in the stress of holiday gift giving, extreme schedules, lack of money, or financial problems. We need to step back and remind ourselves of the many good friends, happy get-togethers, and uh, the joyful time of year. We need to develop an attitude of helping others in need and remember to cultivate an attitude of gratitude at the holidays and throughout the year. This is Dr. Susan Blank. Thanks for listening. This is americaswebradio.com, the best in
2: chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, talking to you about all the latest mental health news. And right now we're talking about some remarkable research documenting abnormal changes in the structure of the brains of babies born to mothers who suffered from depression. Now, in a similar study published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, researchers found women who are depressed during pregnancy are more likely to have an unhealthy diet that can negatively impact a child's cognitive functioning later in life. Uh, Prenatal maternal depression symptoms relate to both increased unhealthy and decreased healthy prenatal diets. A mother's diet during pregnancy directly influences the nutritional atmosphere of the fetus, which will affect brain development. When a woman is depressed, uh, she's less capable of looking after herself and therefore the unborn fetus in one of those ways. Uh, in which uh, self care deteriorates in terms of uh, the quality of diet and nutrition. The findings of both studies suggest not only should pregnant women be helped to adopt a healthier diet, but also, very importantly, to have interventions that target maternal depression in the early stages of pregnancy. This will ensure better physical and mental health outcomes for mothers and infants once they are born. Now the article about this research doesn't talk about what these interventions should be and that's because it really doesn't matter. Psychotherapy helps pregnant women with depression. Uh, So too does medication, if it's warranted, if it's necessary, if psychotherapy alone is not sufficient. But again, uh, despite all the conflicting and some unsubstantiated reports of negative effects on the fetus of mothers taking antidepressants during pregnancy, uh, this to me is a smoking gun that maternal depression damages the brains of the fetus and therefore must be treated even if medication is necessary to prevent such damage and to prevent the newborn from uh, being vulnerable to mental illness. All right, now again, I want you to weigh in. If uh, there's anybody out there who's either had some experiences that relate to this issue, you have strong feelings about it, you have more questions, definitely feel free to uh, send me any questions or feedback. And again, the email address for me is Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at radiosandysprings.com, R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. Next up on tonight's show, well, here we are, just about the middle of December, and uh, it's dark early, the weather is colder, and in much of the country it's been Quite rainy and dreary, uh, as it has been here in the Metro Atlanta, Georgia area. So this is prime time for winter blues, and uh, winter time. Uh, it's a time of gift giving and festive holidays too, when joy is supposed to ring through the air, and yet many people feel very sad that this is the season that brings the blues. Now, if you feel sad or unmotivated or depressed during the winter, that is to say every year, or if a sad mood comes over you during the same season every year, regardless of which season it is, you might be at risk for or actually have seasonal affective disorder. Affect refers to mood, uh, otherwise known as SAD. Winter is... Again, the days are shorter, the sun sets earlier, stays lower in the sky, and the further north you live, the more pronounced this effect is. Less daylight, however, is just only one of the seasonal changes that can contribute to seasonal affective disorder symptoms. Although the mental health condition most commonly occurs in individuals during the winter, there are some people who have the opposite pattern and have SAD during the summer months or even sometimes the spring. But regardless of when it occurs, it is important to recognize the symptoms in yourself or in others and to understand treatment options for the condition. SAD is basically a type of depression. The symptoms are very similar to what a clinically depressed person might feel. However, these symptoms may vary according to the season when they experience the condition. In fact, the symptoms for fall and winter versus spring and summer can sometimes almost be opposite of one another. In the wintertime, typical feelings of SAD might be depression, sadness, hopelessness, and a general loss of interest in activities that a person would otherwise enjoy doing. The person might withdraw from social activities or interactions with family and friends. A person with wintertime SAD might also lack energy and feel tired all the time, which can also lead them to oversleep or to feel a heavy feeling in their arms and legs. They'll also see changes in their appetite uh, and especially cravings for more hard-carbohydrate foods. And begin gaining weight. And they might have a hard time concentrating or focusing on a particular task. And they could also feel greater anxiety, which is a a hallmark system, symptom rather, for those who experience SAD in the spring or summertime. Now, so this winter SAD pattern, you can almost conceptualize it. Uh, Like a bear hibernating from winter, just going inside, withdrawn, isolative, not interacting with the world, sleeping a lot, um, eating a lot, putting on weight, not able to think clearly, not motivated. Now, the spring and summer symptoms can be very different. They're uh, somewhat opposite, like the article was saying, to winter depression symptoms having a poor appetite, losing weight without trying for good reason, trouble sleeping or frequent insomnia, and having an increased sex drive instead of a decreased one. Now, I will say that for seasonal affective disorders, far and away the winter depression pattern is uh, most common. Now, a person doesn't have to have all the symptoms to have a seasonal affective disorder. And they might experience different symptoms than the typical patterns. But if several of these seem familiar and also interrupt daily activities and routines and are disabling to one degree or another and affect someone's quality of life negatively, then it may be worth seeing a mental health professional When SAD gets uh, out of hand and goes without treatment, it can develop into worse complications, including suicidal thoughts or behavior, complete social withdrawal, substance abuse, problems at work or school. Now, who is most at risk for SAD? Individuals who already have a diagnosed mental health condition, such as bipolar disorder, can also experience elevated symptoms due to SAD. But actually, I think in this case, it isn't so much that they have SAD per se. It's really just a seasonal variation in the uh, bipolar mood disorder, which of course is present year-round, regardless of season. But I think it's true that uh, the seasonal changes in mood are no more striking than in someone with bipolar disorder. It is quite typical for these patients to have more manic or hypomanic symptoms during the spring uh, and then even developing full-blown mania later in the spring or summer. And if the person with bipolar disorder has greater hyperactivity, rapid thoughts or speech, excessive enthusiasm, persistent agitation, or a constantly elevated mood, that corresponds to a particular season, especially spring or summer. Obviously, they're in a manic episode and uh, need to get treatment. Those who already have clinical depression also tend to be more prone to develop SAD than others. Generally, the symptoms the depressed person is already experiencing simply becomes worse during the winter. They may require temporary changes in their treatment plan to deal with the seasonal changes. And I can recall several patients over the course of my uh, career that definitely needed their treatment adjusted in the winter and then again in the spring, even to the point of a person who took the same exact antidepressant medication year-round, but Every year when we turn the clocks back in the fall and the days got shorter, the person needed a higher dose of their medication to feel well. And then in the spring, when we turn the clocks ahead again, we decrease the dose back to the spring and summer level. Now, as with other mental health conditions, a family history of depression, bipolar disorder, or SAD itself can also be a risk factor for SAD. If members of a person's family have had the condition, that person is already at higher risk for it. SAD tends to be diagnosed more often in women than in men, but men can certainly suffer the symptoms as well. In fact, the symptoms can be more severe and or overlooked in men, but really I think the reason the article says that is unfortunately for the most part men tend to wait before they get treatment um, until things are much more severe. Uh, in other words, they, they come in too late. Things are already too far gone by the time they decide they need help. And uh, hate to gender stereotype, but unfortunately that is uh, very, very common. And, of course, geography plays a role in SAD. The further a person lives from the equator, obviously the greater risk or SAD, because of the uh, shorter days. In the northern hemisphere, living further north can increase the risk because of the shorter, darker winter days and the longer, brighter summer days. All right. Now, let's uh, take another commercial break here. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of SAD, and we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break.
2: Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on americaswebradio.com.
0: This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio and medical director for the Atlanta Healing Center with your recovery tip of the day. If you have a loved one who you suspect has the disease of addiction, you may need professional help in assisting that loved one into treatment. You may consider contacting your local physician, a clergy member, an employee assistance program director, or Or other behavioral health or mental health professionals. There are also addiction counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, and professional interventionists who are trained in interventions and in assisting family members with the problem of trying to get their loved one into a safe treatment program. If you have any of these concerns, the important thing is that you reach out and get some professional help. I'm Dr. Susan Blank with your recovery tip of the day.
2: Hello, I'm Steve Gross. I'm the host of the Grocery reality and we're a show that every week talks about ways to run your business better ways to uh, improve technology that you're using to make more profits and keep your costs down we're always looking out for you and looking out for ways to make your business more successful thank you for joining us and we look forward to you every wednesday afternoon on the gross reality you're listening to America's americaswebradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio thank you for listening
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you here, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, otherwise known as winter depression. Now, why does it that SAD happens to people? how, How is it that it happens? Researchers aren't sure of the exact causes, but there are several factors that they believe contribute to it. Because of the risks related to family history uh, of mental illness and other mental health conditions, genetics may play some part in the condition. A person's age and general chemical makeup may be a part of it as well. But why would the symptoms change with the seasons? The answer may lie in what happens to human bodies in response to the changes in the light that they're exposed to. All of us have an internal body clock called a circadian rhythm. These circadian rhythms influence a large number of bodily functions, especially sleep and waking, and they are strongly influenced by exposure to sunlight. When the days become longer or shorter and the amount of daylight your body is exposed to changes, it can change the way your body clock operates. This can lead to more sleepiness in the wintertime or more insomnia in the summertime, both of which are major symptoms of SAD. Another sunlight-related change from the seasons relates to melatonin. Melatonin is a hormone made by the pineal gland, a small gland at the base of the brain. This is also influenced by sunlight. In fact, melatonin, which you'll recognize is sold over the counter as if it were uh, simply a natural or herbal supplement, which uh, it is not, it is a hormone, and it plays a role in maintaining the body's internal clock. An increase in melatonin, triggered by the sun going down and the lack of sunlight, helps the body realize it's time to sleep. And a drop in melatonin triggered by the sunrise helps the body realize that it's time to wake up. It's when the amount of sunlight in one's environment changes that uh, the amount or timing of melatonin produced by the body changes as well, influencing a person's sleeping pattern as well as their mood. And also... The brain chemical known as serotonin, famously involved in mood and uh, very famously known to be the main mechanism of action behind most antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications, uh, affects a person's mood and uh, it's related to clinical depression. Now, when serotonin is out of balance in the pathways in the brain that are regulated by it, this can lead to sadness and depression and it's also possible that a drop in sunlight can have a negative impact on serotonin balance in the brain. Now, how can seasonal affective disorder be treated? Well, when a person undergoes medical evaluation for symptoms of SAD they'll likely have a basic exam and uh, fill out a questionnaire or answer detailed questions from the doctor. It's not like there is a, a specific medical test, but it's, it's done just based on the frequency of symptoms and the person's answers to questions about their experience. So it's important for the person to be honest about their symptoms. You know, there's no such thing as a blood test or a brain scan for seasonal affective disorder. And there are three main medical treatments, according to this article, uh, for seasonal affective disorder. And then there are several activities people can do to uh, improve their condition on their own. A common treatment option involves light therapy in which a person sits close to a special light that is calibrated to be a similar intensity and or color as the sun. Now, for those of you who are thinking of purchasing such a light for yourself, uh, be very careful what you buy because it has to be a very specific type of light uh, in order for it to be an effective treatment for SAD. And uh, in very... In most cases, something you see um, advertised in a regular hardware store or big-box retail store as, uh, you know, a uh, mood-improving, sun-like light may not actually be up to the task. <clears throat> light therapy boxes may help the body reset the circadian rhythms and or they may influence changes in melatonin or serotonin production. Another option is psychotherapy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, that can help a person learn healthy ways to cope with the condition, including managing stress and anxiety. Finally, a person with SAD might be prescribed antidepressant medications, such as Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Lexapro, Effexor, Cymbalta, there are many different antidepressants. But I'll tell you what the article does not mention. There is one and only one prescription antidepressant that is specifically approved by the Food and Drug Administration for seasonal depression, and that's Wellbutrin. Specifically Wellbutrin XL, the once-a-day extended release tablet version of the drug, and I find it to be an extremely effective treatment for depression in general, but especially for winter depression. Do you remember how we talked about before the specific symptoms that are very prevalent in winter depression in particular, feeling very tired, sluggish, lethargic, unmotivated, can't think straight, eating too much, gaining weight? Wellbutrin XL is the antithesis of all of these symptoms. When it works well for a patient, and unfortunately no medication works well for everybody who takes it, but when it does, it gives people more energy, more motivation, better thinking, focus, and concentration, and it curbs appetite, especially the dreaded carb cravings. So it makes an ideal treatment for winter depression especially. There are other steps an individual can take on their own that may help lessen symptoms as well. Getting outside and making your home or work environment sunnier and brighter can both help. The idea is to expose yourself to as much sunlight as possible. Now, it may be difficult in the winter when the days are short and the weather's bad, but there are some sunny days during the winter, even if it might be cold. So, you know, this might not sound attractive, but my strong recommendation to those who suffer from winter depression, you get up in the morning and it's sunny out, it's not raining or snowing, uh, get outside, bundle up, get outside and uh, go for a walk as long as you can stand it anyway in the cold uh, because that exposure to sunlight early in the morning is crucial to counteract winter depression. Now, in addition getting regular exercise, no matter what time of day or where you get it, outside or inside, can often reduce SAD symptoms as well as just in general relieve stress and anxiety. Most importantly though, do not ignore symptoms of SAD. It's not healthy or normal to feel extremely sad or to sleep constantly throughout the winter, the winter time. If you Or a loved one experiences symptoms of SAD, seek out treatment and uh, determine the most appropriate treatment options, whether that's counseling, therapy, medication, or light therapy. Now, speaking of the light therapy, I wanted to give you a couple of websites where you can look into the purchase of uh light therapy devices for yourself, all right? So I'm going to give you two. One is sunbox.com, s-u-n-b-o-x.com, okay? And the other one is northernlighttechnologies.com, all strung together, northernlighttechnologies.com. So there's the double T in the middle of all that. So these are two websites that Are legitimate sources uh, for the purchase of light boxes that are specifically designed to treat symptoms of SAD. And I do want to say that it is very possible that someone could have depression year round and feel even worse during the winter. And that person too would benefit from using a light box. In other words, it isn't only a person who has depression during the winter months only and feels well the rest of the year who would benefit from using the light box. Those who have depression year-round and feel worse in the winter could also benefit. And I also want to say you have to be very careful how and when you use the light box. What I mean is that you have to use the light box first thing in the morning. Let's say anywhere from a half hour to an hour for most people, it's usually around an hour. But if you use the light box too late, you are going to throw off your circadian rhythm. Uh, and you will unintentionally set your body clock later and you won't be able to sleep at a normal time. So be careful to use the light box soon as you get up in the morning. All right. Now, um, hopefully that will help those of you who are suffering from winter depression, and uh, putting up with the short days, the early darkness, getting up in the dark and going to work, coming home from work in the dark, and uh, again, uh, I know it doesn't sound attractive to go outside in the cold, but on those sunny days, take advantage of it, and that will also help. Also, uh, just uh, a, a note of hope for those of you who suffer severely from this every winter, uh we're, like I said, almost at the middle of December. So by another month from now, yeah, usually mid-January, you can already start to see the days getting very slightly longer. So we only have about another month or so before things start turning around. Uh, so that should uh, give those winter depression sufferers a little bit of hope in this holiday season. All right, we're going to take another commercial break, and we'll be back with more mental health-related news. After that, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
2: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like.
0: This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio and medical director for the Atlanta Healing Center with your recovery tip of the day. If you have a loved one who you suspect has the disease of addiction, you may need professional help in assisting that loved one into treatment. You may consider contacting your local physician, a clergy member, an employee assistance program director, or other behavioral health or mental health Professionals. There are also addiction counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, and professional interventionists who are trained in interventions and in assisting family members with the problem of trying to get their loved one into a safe treatment program. If you have any of these concerns, the important thing is that you reach out and get some professional help. I'm Dr. Susan Blank with your recovery tip of the day.
2: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you here on America's Web Radio, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. This next item was certainly newsworthy in uh, the mental health world. More than 6% of United States teenagers take psychiatric medications In fact, uh, a recent survey shows this, that more than 6% of U.S. teens take prescription medications for a mental health condition, such as depression or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. This new survey also revealed a wide gap in psychiatric drug use across ethnic and racial groups. Earlier studies have documented a rise in the use of these medications among teens, but they mainly looked at high-risk groups, such as children who have been hospitalized for psychiatric problems. The new survey provides a snapshot of the number of adolescents in the general population who took a psychiatric drug in the past month from 2005 to 2010. Teens aged 12 to 19 typically took drugs to treat depression or ADHD, the two most common mental health disorders in that age group. About 4% of kids aged 12 to 17 have experienced a bout of depression. Meanwhile, 9% of children aged 5 to 17 have been diagnosed with ADHD, a behavioral disorder marked by difficulty paying attention and impulsive behavior. Males were more likely to be taking medication to treat ADHD, while females were more commonly taking medication to treat depression. This follows patterns seen in the diagnosis of these conditions across genders. Exactly what is driving the new numbers isn't clear, but It seems to be an increase in the diagnosis of various conditions that these medications can be prescribed for. These are stressful times, and it's also possible that children are becoming more vulnerable to these conditions as a result. The recession and various world events certainly cause a lot of stress for adults, and that stress perhaps may be filtering down to their teenage children. Adolescents and children take psychiatric medications. It is a reality. They are not in the majority, but it's far from rare. There are many ways to treat mental health problems and mood disorders in adolescents. Medication certainly is one of them. Now, the next step in the whole process of looking at mental health problems in children and adolescents and teens is a thorough evaluation of by a mental health professional. Uh, There is no other explanation for the problem and symptoms but to explore all treatment options, not just medication. There are conditions that may respond better to other types of therapy, either with or without medication. Now, of those teens that were taking a single psychiatric medication, Roughly one half had seen a medical uh, professional that that specialized in mental health during the past year. Many pediatricians handle common mental health problems in adolescents and children. uh, Less often depression, but quite typically ADHD is handled by the pediatrician. The survey showed that while teens are much more likely to be taking a psychiatric drug when compared to uh when you compare ethnic groups, whites much more likely than whites or than sorry, than blacks or Mexican Americans. Um this gap may be due to the lack of access to health care or other economic issues when it comes to ethnic or racial minorities. Location also may play a role. There may be a lack of mental health providers in uh the Less wealthy areas where uh, racial and ethnic minorities tend to be. Uh, there also also maybe cultural taboos among the parents um, that uh, may be stronger in the uh, racial and ethnic minorities. But regardless, I think the take home point of the study is that, you know, wow, there's 6%. That's a substantial amount of teenagers in this country. Who are on medication. And, uh, you know, there are those who will point to this and say, look, you know, there's too many kids taking medication. Uh, we're throwing pills at them. Instead, we should be doing a better job counseling them, or you know, even before that, a better job parenting them. Uh, well, there are always going to be people who will make that argument. But really, in my opinion, uh, while there may be, a lot of teenagers who are on medication unnecessarily, mostly because they have not been properly evaluated and diagnosed by a mental health professional, but are merely being treated by a pediatrician or family practice physician, I would say for any one kid who's inappropriately on psychiatric medication, there are many, many more who need to be who are not. Either because there aren't the resources available for treatment because of a lack of provider, or a lack of ability of the family to afford the treatment, or biases on the par- part of the parents against such evaluation and treatment. Uh, so, really, you know, again, I think um, while the article doesn't address that, uh, I would offer the opinion that. There are more kids who need to be on medicine than are not uh, than uh, kids who are on medicine unnecessarily. Here is uh, another article having to do with ADHD, but a different take on it. We don't really know what causes ADHD and what the risk factors are other than it being genetic. It's it's very obvious that that it's transmitted in families. Typically, father-to-son transmission is quite common. But here's a study that shows that when mothers smoke and have uh, an early delivery of their babies, this may raise the risk of ADHD in children. The new study comes to us from Australia, perhaps shedding more light on what environmental factors might raise the risk for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder known as ADHD. Compared with mothers whose children did not have ADHD, mothers of children with ADHD were more likely to be younger, single, smoked during pregnancy, had some complications of pregnancy and labor, and were more likely to have given birth slightly earlier. And it did not make any difference if the child was a girl or a boy researchers did find that girls were less likely to have ADHD if their mothers had received the hormone oxytocin to speed up labor. Previous research had suggested its use during childbirth might actually increase the risk of ADHD. The causes of ADHD remain unclear. As I said before, evidence suggests genes play a major role. Many prior studies have found an association between ADHD and tobacco and alcohol exposure in the womb, prematurity, and complications of pregnancy and delivery. One thing is certain, diagnoses of ADHD have become common in the United States. A survey released in November found that 10% of American children have been diagnosed with a condition although the rapid increase in numbers seems to have leveled off. The study we talked about previously said it was around 9% in the same ballpark, obviously. ADHD is more prevalent in boys. Its symptoms include distractibility, inattention, and a lack of focus. Now, the article doesn't go into this, but I do want to mention the discrepancy between girls and boys. The ADHD inattentive type only is more prevalent in girls, uh, whereas boys are more likely to have ADHD combined type, which includes both inattentive symptoms and hyperactive impulsive symptoms. You have these three types of ADHD, there's inattentive type, hyperactive impulsive type, and combined type, which has has features of of both of the other two. Now, in the study we're talking about from Australia, researchers took medical records from nearly 13,000 children and young adults who took stimulant medications for ADHD between 2003 and 2007. This was medicines like Ritalin and Adderall and others that are typically used to treat ADHD. The researchers compared the subjects to more than 30,000 other kids to see if there were any environmental differences. Although factors such as a mother's younger age and smoking during pregnancy were linked to a higher risk of ADHD in children, low birth weight, birth greater than than full term, and breathing difficulties in the baby were not more common in the ADHD group. Chronic exposure to smoking in pregnancy may create an imbalance in chemicals that results in ADHD. Some researchers have suggested that people with ADHD are more likely to smoke themselves, and then they may pass on their ADHD-related genes to their children. Uh, Information that affects the development, inflammation rather, that affects the development of the brain in the fetus, related to stress during pregnancy, perhaps from being a single or young mother, could do the same thing. But since ADHD is associated with higher rates of teen pregnancy, it is also possible that the younger and single mothers themselves have higher rates of ADHD, and they are passing on their ADHD-related genes to their children. So there's your connection there. You have a population that is at risk for ADHD, and therefore is more likely to smoke. And so is it the smoking during pregnancy? that causes ADHD, or is it uh, just a population that has more ADHD itself and is passing the disorder on genetically uh, to its offspring regardless of the smoking? Well, as is typical for researchers to say, uh, more study on the subject is needed, to be sure. For those of you who are interested in taking a closer look at this article, it's in the December 2 and January print issue, Uh, Sorry, online December 2nd and January print issue of the journal Pediatrics. And that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. I hope that you enjoyed hearing the information that I enjoyed bringing to you. And I sincerely hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.